Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle McLoon, your host. You can find my podcast and other great Catholic radio programming on archangelradio.com. Today, we are talking to a Catholic author of a historical romance. And I have to say from the very beginning, I do not usually read historical romances. I'm an aviator, a retired army officer, a canon lawyer, mother of sons. I come from a pretty hard lot. (laughs) But I have to tell you, this book we're talking about today is great. Welcome, Rhonda Ortiz. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. (laughs) We are so glad to have you. The book that we're speaking about today is In Pieces by Rhonda Ortiz, published by the Chrism Press. Rhonda Franklin Ortiz is an award-winning novelist and nonfiction writer whose articles on spirituality, family life, arts, and culture have been published by a variety of popular media outlets. Additionally, she spent four years serving as art director for the literary magazine Dappled Things. Rhonda is also now a founding editor of Chrism Press. And Rhonda, you have five children and you have a book coming out. You're a hero. Oh, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me a little bit about Chrism Press. It's such a new press that I think it's worth talking about. Absolutely. absolutely. So it's, it is very unique both in its founding and in its robustly ecumenical mission. So basically the story is, I'm actually rather intimately involved in the story and this book is intimately involved in the story because I was going through the acquisition process with the parent company, Whitefire Publishing. Whitefire is owned by David and Rosanna White, uh, friends of mine from college. And Rosanna has been a mentor for many, many years. I was having a hard time trying to figure out where to place this book. And finally, Rosanna said, well, why don't you send a proposal our way? And I really hesitated because I was like, you know, I like my friends. It's hard, you know, publishing, they're not going to take something they can't sell. So sure. So I was like, okay, relationship, do I do this? Do I not do this? And then eventually I said, I'm going to take the plunge. And through the process of acquisition, David and Rosanna had the idea of why don't we start an imprint for Catholic fiction? And so what we ended up doing was uh, they brought me on board as a founding editor. They also brought novelist Karen Ulo on board as a founding editor. They had an, Whitefire had an editor already, Risa Deshaies Stokely, who is also Catholic. So three of us formed the founding editorial board. Um, We also wanted to open it up to Orthodox writers, Orthodox Christian writers, because we thought, well, this is a nice ecumenical project. The Whites are running a a kind of a Christian market, Protestant press, evangelical press. They say, okay, let's make a line that we, you know, we call Chrism Press. We market differently where, you know, this has its own branding and everything like that. And it's targeted toward Catholics and Orthodox and that it's a place for there's, there was a hole in the market for kind of like smart genre fiction, kind of high-end popular fiction, things that wouldn't necessarily fit at the existing Catholic presses. And there's not a whole lot that take fiction anyway, but we felt like there was a hole in the market. So yeah, so this is a very fun endeavor. And so my own book was part of this process because I had taken the risk of, of submitting to them 
Chris and Press came out of it. That's the story. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, we've had we've had one other author, Eleanor Berg Nicholson, Brother Werewolf, excellent yeah. fiction. And yeah. now we have your wonderful book. So let's talk about your book. In Pieces is a historical romance set in what year? Uh, 1793. And it's set in Boston. And, and that's a fun period to write. I will tell you it's early America. The drafting and ratification of the constitution is only a few years prior to this. And so you see all of the founding of the country in this time period. And it's very interesting that you do have in this time period, because you also see the effects of the French revolution. You see the kind of the relationship that the United States has with the South at this Mm -hmm. time. You mm-hmm. see a l- little bit of rum and Al- <laughs> Alexander Hamilton's decision to tax rum, which mm-hmm. actually affects your story. So you place a lot of great historical notes to kind of set the scene for this wonderful tale. Tell us a little bit about some of the characters in your book. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the story opens eight weeks after Molly Chase, who's the main character, finds her father's dead body in his study. And he has committed suicide in a particularly gruesome way. As a result, she's suffering from what we would say severe PTSD. She's a fun one. She's an artist in terms of she likes dressmaking. She's definitely got an artistic temperament. And she also happens to be from a well-to-do family that is financially struggling a little bit. And so she's She's kind of hard up when her father dies. And she also happens to be hot, which I never <laughs> thought I would write a character like this. I thought, you know, I mean, she's not just pretty. She's hot. And I, right. I this, this is important to the plot, you know, and I, that distinction, most of us know what that distinction is. And it, it plays into the plot. And the poor girl, I mean, she just cannot escape attention. And it's and it's really actually very bothersome for her. So, so anyway, so we walk in on this. This is how we open up the story. And her childhood friend, merchant sailor, Josiah Robb, he arrives home from sea and discovers her in the throes of this and decides to take her home to be cared for by his family. The two families, Molly's family and Josiah's family are very close. And the story goes from there. There's a couple things that really kind of bring this story out. First thing, you really pay attention to the mores of the time period. This is not a free-for-all time. There is still very formal. I think they refer to her as the reclusive beauty, right? (laughs) Maybe a code word for hot in early colonial times. But there's a very sense of propriety that she has to fall into in early colonial Bostonian society. At the one hand, the 1700s, in some sense, are very kind of body compared to the Victorians. But this is Boston. There's a letter, and I, I wish I could remember who she wrote it to, but Abigail Adams writing to a friend after having been down to Philadelphia and returning to Massachusetts. She'd been down in Philadelphia, and she makes this comment about all the bosoms, you know, all the clothes are so revealing in Philadelphia, right? You know, so on one hand, it's not Victorian, but the necklines aren't all the way up to the neck. But at the same time, there are expectations about behavior. And when Josiah takes Molly home, this is a very simple and just very human thing. She doesn't have any family to go to. Her mother has died, which is what leads to her father's suicide. And there's not any good options for her. Josiah takes her home because 
his mother can nurse her and hide the fact that having these flashbacks kind of loses sense of her surroundings. And that's, that's a good way to make a name for yourself. And so, but just even that simple act of, for a girl like this, this actually causes a scandal. And it's just, it's a little thing, but then Josiah makes a a kind of an imprudent decision that actually kind of makes it blow up. So you've got Puritan values, you've got society. But you do something very interesting because, so the family that she's staying with, those are the Robs, they are Uh congregationalists, I guess. They belong to Old South Church. Uh But Josiah is actually starting to explore Catholicism in a very intellectual way. So we see Josiah is a sea merchant and you keep bringing out in your writing in the book that, you know, this is a sweaty, grimy business, (laughs) but he's actually an intellect. He's kind of a closet intellect. Right, right. Yeah. And so it sort of that intellectuality leads him to start searching for his Catholicism. Josiah's family, his grandfather, his maternal grandfather was a Congregationalist minister. We have his mother, who's a main character in the book, and we have her viewpoint. And she's a very firm, very well-reasoned Congregationalist Christian. And, And then we have Josiah. And the backstory for them is that his father was a merchant captain, had his own ship, and lost his fortune after the British closed Boston Harbor. And then that he ends up fighting with the Massachusetts Navy and dying at Penobscot. And I'm sure I'm just saying that wrong because I'm not from Maine. So anyway, so he dies. Josiah ends up having this sort of, as a child, has a mystical experience of his father who had died for somebody else, you know, to save somebody else, which is probably the most Christ-like thing you can do is to give yourself for the life of another. He has this mystical experience of his father, of his dead father. This is not an experience that he can reconcile with his own tradition. And so, and his mother, of course, when he tells her, you know, his mother questions this. You're just imagining things. You're wishful thinking. And so anyway, so this begins a sort of journey. He has kind of an intellectual background in the sense that one side of the family is a very intellectual family and the other side of the family is they're, they're sailors. He does have both of these things and he's very fortunate in that Molly's father had his education possible. So, and he's no, just talented. And he is, he's a very talented man. Your character in describing him really shows a man that has a sense of self and sense of responsibility for others. And he really yeah. does take on that responsibility for others and kind of gets him in trouble eventually. Let me ask you, what is a congregationalist for our audience? Yeah. So, I mean, congregationalists are basically the um, inheritors, I guess, of the Puritan, Puritan stock. You know, these are properly, probably Calvinists. They're not following in the same line as say the Dutch reformed or the Huguenots, but, but yeah. So, you know, your old roundheads, everybody who came on the Mayflower, you know, these, these are your, your Puritans. And Mrs. Robb is, or Sarah Robb is, they're in that line. Okay. Now, let me ask you something. You use a word that I've never seen before, and I think many of our readers would have never seen before. You talk about Molly as being a Mantua maker. What is that word? Mantua maker. Yeah, Mantua no, that's right. Maker. Mantua okay. maker. So right. that is the 18th century term for dressmaker, for seamstress. Basically, mantua makers are, and this is interesting in Molly's situation because as somebody whose father is a merchant, who's a, who was a wealthy merchant, this is not something she would do because this is a trade. 
And it's basically the the female or the women's equivalent of a tailor. A mantra maker would have her shop. And actually, this is one of the few women-owned businesses and women-run businesses in that time. Because by the nature of the beast, men cannot be mantra makers because the clothes are fitted. Get a lot of women down in their undies, you know, and (laughs) this is this this is definitely women's women's wouldn't work with the puritanism, right? (laughs) Right. Molly has a talent for this. She just has an interest in it. And her mother, who in all other respects is she's English born. She's comes from gentry in all other respects would very class conscious, but she encourages this in her daughter because she uses it as a way of teaching her daughter how to see other people and how to be observant of other people and kind of teaches her to go, like, reach outside of herself and care for other people through the art of making clothing for other people. And so her mother's a genius parent. I wish I was her mother. You're a good mother. I can tell. That was a really great thing in your book because you do, you, you use that to bring Molly's character out. You actually mature Molly through that one characteristic of trying to see other people, to see how people really are. And so, and when she starts to really look and starts to see, then she has a very clear view of reality. Things, things pop up to her that she had not seen before. And that was such a great technique. The problem, of course, is that she's got this problematic relationship with her father. And I think classically means she just has a problem seeing men. In particular, Josiah. To joke that this book is basically Anne of Green Gables with more pathos and politics. You know, she's kind of clueless. And he's, of course, just smitten. Throughout the book, you kind of see them kind of grow into each other and kind of grow into a slow self-awareness and a slow maturity of each other. And along the way, you actually write in some good precepts of marriage, what healthy marriage is. And Mrs. Rob, Josiah's mother, tries to sort of intervene. And she has a great point. She realizes that she also was not seeing her son as a man. And she was exerting her maternal authority versus respecting him as a man. And actually, this is such a good message. I have three sons on the cusp of manhood and we all have to remember that, right? <laughs> I know. I have my my oldest is almost 11 and I'm start even I'm starting to see that. It's like mom and the purse strings are a point of resentment. You know, the story it definitely has a lot of that family drama and this has been an exploration into theology of the body. And in particular, because the story doesn't end at the book, at the end of the book, it actually continues into their marriage. And, and so there's some really interesting, just marital things that come out that I don't, that I think in some sense are kind of a genre bending a little bit for the romance genre. Cause typically, I mean, there, there are marriage stories, but oftentimes most, I think stories about love are about the courtship, but I am interested in, a hot topic in Catholic circles for, for several decades, right? Which is theology of marriage. And what does that mean? What does it do? What is the sacrament? I would say Molly's whole arc over the series is headed towards sanctification, and it happens through her married life. And I know that this has been good for my own marriage. The thing about Molly, too, Molly's a modern woman. Molly is not in, and what do I mean by a modern woman? She is very much of her own mind. She has her own skill. She wants to become her own businesswoman. 
this is not a character from the past. This is, she's facing many of the questions that most modern women face today. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting because at the same time, and this is actually encouraged by Mrs. Robb, which is in the sense of Mrs. Robb has that wonderful kind of Puritan work ethic, which is Molly, you're, you're sitting around the house, not doing anything. And there's this sense of like, work is curative. And as soon as Molly realizes, like when she starts to put the pieces together on this, at the same time, she has all the assumptions of anybody of that time period. And this is, this is something I'm exploring here in book two. I just turned in that manuscript to my editor. Things like marital obedience, right? She's Anglican. And the Anglicans take, at that time, took a vow of obedience. Women did, their husbands. And so this is kind of uh, interesting. Interestingly, Catholics have never had a vow of obedience. This was something added after the Reformation to the Book of Common Prayer, which I think is really fascinating. Mrs. Robb has this idea that work is curative. Work brings a sense of like, this is gives you a purpose in this. But in any case, but it, it ends up leading into a lot of the action because Josiah, in an effort to support this, buys her a lot of fabric. Textiles are very expensive at this time. And so this is the point of, of great scandal. He basically spent, he drops a whole year's salary on this girl. And, and that just, you know, this triggers this whole society kind of drama. You know, and it's not just Molly who has kind of these work questions. This is also Josiah's question. Josiah is, he's got two problems in the book. He's got a woman problem and he's got a job problem. He is overqualified for his job and it's taking him away from his home and he's just not home. And this really bothers him. And so that leads into this book has a very active, you know, suspense line as part of it. And, but again, these are questions that families, men Mm -hmm. and women have to address. Now we think our problems are unique to our time. They're not, we think they're unique to just our culture. They're not. As human beings, we we sort of kind of all face the same problems, all the same issues about yeah. how do we arrange marriage? How do we arrange children? And it just is. That's just the way it is. Right. And I think even with Josiah, too, the other piece of it is the moral piece. He's in trade. This is a time when the, the slave trade is still act, actually still going. And it's interesting because in Massachusetts, slavery, the practice of slavery was basically made illegal by the courts in 1783. So by the time, this is 10 years after that. So we don't have slavery in Massachusetts at the time, but the trade is everywhere. And so everybody's making money off of this stuff. And so that that ends up being a, a crisis of conscience for him because he makes a bunch of money. And then he happens to visit a plantation down in Martinique. This is an eye-opening experience for him as a as an 18 year old and he doesn't know what to do with his life he's older than 18 but he's been sitting on this for several years and doesn't know what to do and you have the rum distiller too that is in the quandary about because yeah. rum rum comes from sugar right <laughs> right, and, right and the sugar is coming from the slave trade so yeah. this i mean that is definitely interwoven and probably very much true of that historical time. I have to ask you, where did you learn so much about tailoring? Because you're, you pay a lot of attention to women's dresses because it is a book about a woman who sews, but it about women's fashion of the time, what was fashionable, what was not fashionable. Where did you learn that? Are you well, a sewer? Are you a seamstress? Oh, golly. I wish I was. So Molly can sew. I can't. Josiah can sail. I can't. Josiah speaks many languages. I'm, I can't. <laughs> Mrs. Rob Cooks. 
And then there's Prudence Warren, who's the fourth point of view character, who is this kind of academic kind of like character. And, and that's not me either. I mean, I'm a late Dominican. So, I mean, I study as part of my life, but I'm not an academic in that way. So it's funny. Yeah. How did I learn? I had a number of books that I use on a regular basis. The best book I had was from a company called American Duchess. And the, the owners of that company wrote a book that basically it's the guide to 18th century dressmaking. And they go through and they have, these are the different gowns and this is how you sew it. Okay. Now I know how to sew it. Okay. Now I know the stitches. Okay. You know, so this is, and it's literally how to hand sew these dresses. And so they do historical reproductions. That must be a heck of a book. You also use another term that I never heard of. And I think probably a lot of our readers haven't heard of a patent. What they want. What is that? Wait, so tell us about that. They're iron rings. The streets are kind of a, in Boston at that time were kind of a mix of dirt and cobblestone. Boston's not that big, actually. It's only about 18,000 people at that time. And you have a, have a society where you have animals hauling people around. You're going to have manure. And it's very muddy and it's very gross. And so they had these iron rings that women would wear and they would put them, they would basically strap them to the bottom of their shoes and it would lift them out of the dirt. And so they would be walking on the patents and it, it basically is like almost like putting platforms on the bottom of your shoes. So your okay. shoes and your skirts don't get dirty. Okay. I had never heard yeah. of that. That's interesting. Yeah. There's Weird. lots of little things like that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's what makes this book so rich. Cause you really, even like the food you talk about and how they prepare the food and it really is, it's a very rich book in detail. How did you come up with the idea? What was the genesis behind writing this book? Where did this come from for you? Oh, well, that's really interesting. So I had started this in 1770s England. Molly is the central character in a whole completely different cast of characters. And what ended up happening was uh, that story just bombed. I, I wrote it and I finished it, but there was something wrong with it. And I just knew like it lasts some sort of essential element. I had a, it was set with both, like recusant Catholics and there was lots of action and fights and a cliff and all that sort of, you know, falling off. Okay. Not, you know, there, there's lots of action. But what happened was in doing some research, just historical research, I happened across the fact that 10,000, they estimate 10,000 American merchant sailors were impressed into British naval service during the the French Revolutionary Wars. So between 1793, when the book opens, and through basically through the War of 1812, 10,000 Americans were in British service forced. And, And so impressment, of course, is very, very much alive. And this was actually already happening just from the beginning, this was actually when they went to negotiate the Jay's Treaty in 1795. This was one of the things on the table with the British. You know, you are forcing our sailors into your service and they are not British. So in any case, so I happened upon that fact. And then all of a sudden, I just had kind of an idea. I, I already had Josiah kind of in the back of my mind. And I had an idea for the sailors. And so I ended up scrapping the whole first story. Went back to Boston. I finally let Josiah into this book. And all of a sudden, that was the animating character. That was the one I needed because he sees, the way he sees Molly and the way he interacts with Molly is a lot of fun. They're great together. And it just, that actually put the story and I never left Boston. So this story continues. Uh, I just finished number two. I am working, I just started work on number three as of yesterday. And it just, I'm hoping to get it done in three. That may not happen. It may be four. 
that would not surprise me. And with great apologies to my editor um, <laughs> and myself, I have other books I want to, you know, and I love this story. So I, I need to see it to its end, but it's, uh, so it's either three or four total. I don't want to give anything away, but will Molly stay in Boston? Will you stay in the Boston area, you think? Yeah, yeah, we will okay. be in Boston. So, but next book, I actually, one of the characters in the first book, Eliza Hall, she ends up being a point of view character in the second, and she goes to Philadelphia. Okay, so, I don't remember Eliza Hall. Oh, that's the one that she makes the trousseau for? No, that's Jordan. No, Eliza, Eliza is one of the spies. We, she's She's mixed race. And Molly, Molly keeps oh, seeing her. Right. Yes. Cat. And this is, she, I mean, mentions she's mixed race because this is the thing Molly notices, of course. And she's There's, very beautiful. She's, she and Molly are parallel characters. And that's a lot of fun to write too. Eliza is a wonderful character. And I, I've been having a lot of fun in book two with Eliza. So. That's cool. That's, that's yeah. really great. And was there any particular reason that you chose like that era of history, like the 1700s? Again, once, you know, figuring out the, the French Revolutionary War piece of it, that was really fun. Getting to do some research on this period, I realized that it's kind of a untapped. There's the Genet affair, which okay. plays into my series, um, Citizen Genet. And basically, he was trying to drag the United States into the war on the side of France. Again, over okay. over and above Washington. Um, I mean, and I think a lot of people are kind of familiar with it now, thanks to Hamilton, the musical. This is when Hamilton is the Secretary of the Treasury. That citizen Genet, he was the ambassador to France at the time. Mm-hmm. And he was an actual character and he was yeah. as colorful as they come. We really want to congratulate you on this book. For Thank readers you. who want to purchase this book, we know everybody can go to Amazon or we call them the uh, digital overlords. Where would you prefer people to go buy this book? So uh, two places. One is to go to chrismpress.com. And if you go to the tab, there's a page for books and you will see that there. And the other place to go is actually my own website. I actually am selling signed paperbacks for anybody who wants to buy it direct from me. So that's fun. So that's rondaortiz.com. And I have an H in my name, R-H-O-N-D-A-O-R-T-I-Z.com. I will connect it with the description for the podcast. So I'll make sure that it's on there. All right. Perfect. To my listeners, I really recommend this as a book club read. This would be a great ladies book club read. I just think this is, it's a great book to talk about. It's got drama. It's got morality in it. It's got color. It's just truly a good book. And like I said, I don't read this type of book and I could not, put it down. So there we <laughs> it makes go. Me happy. It makes me so happy to hear that. It really does. I had a, one of my, one of our neighbors, he's a professor. He looked at the, the sample chapters and told my husband, this is a real book, probably the best endorsement. <laughs> it is a real book and it's a good substantial read. It's a 350 page book. So if you're kind of looking for something to dive into, this is the book. Rhonda, we really really want to thank you. We've thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, fabulous interview. And we've been speaking with Rhonda Franklin Ortiz, author of the historical romance fiction entitled In Pieces, published by Chrism Press. Thank you. You have been listening to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle McAloon, your host. You can find my podcast and other great Catholic radio programming on 
archangelradio.com. And you can follow me on Michelle McAloon one Twitter. That is I'm a Twitter bird. Anyway, (laughs) thank you so much. And God bless. 